Amen. Please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We'll be reading together verses 1 through 11. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a brief little mini-series thinking about the incarnation of our Savior and, in particular, the uses of the incarnation. What has God revealed the truth of the incarnation for? For what purpose does the Lord want us to believe that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man and dwelt among us? This morning, we look at what is probably a familiar passage, and we pray that God would take his word and would work its truths deep within our hearts. So here, the word of God from Philippians chapter 2, reading together verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank you and we praise you that you have sent your son Jesus into the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were not unwilling to be sent. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work at the incarnation. We ask that you, Father, Son, and Spirit would now be with us that we might understand more of the truth of the gospel that we might understand how to apply that gospel into our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We don't know the exact nature of their conflict. Paul tells us that they were ladies who had shared in the struggle of the gospel. They had ministered together with Paul. They were his fellow workers, he says. Their names were written in the book of life. They were true Christians who had a commitment to ministry. And yet their relationship had been torn apart by something. Again, we don't know what it was. It was so bad and it was so important to Paul that they be reconciled and that they live in agreement with one another that he calls them out by name in this letter. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Syntyche to, uh, to agree to live in harmony in the Lord. Now remember, Paul's letters would have been read out loud publicly in a worship service just like this. Right? Could you imagine uh, reading for the first time this letter and hearing your name, right? As Paul says, I, I want you and you to get along. 
right? To love one another, uh, to agree in the Lord. But evidently, it wasn't just these two ladies, right, who were struggling with relationships in the churches there in Philippi. For as we see in our text this morning, uh, Paul exhorts the entire congregation to walk in unity and humility and selflessness in their relationships with one another. You, you see his appeal there in verses two to four, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let, let each one look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, the believers in Philippi were, were just like us. They were a bunch of sinners saved by grace. They were justified, but still ungodly men and women, boys and girls, relating in still ungodly ways to still ungodly other people. And so their churches were filled with divisions and and bitter envies and power struggles and selfish glory speaking, right? Whether it was between husband and wife, whether it was between brothers and sisters, parents and children, people within the church, roommates, friends, neighbors, employers, employees, co-workers, there was struggle. There was tension in relationship. Relationships are, are hard, aren't they? Right? Particularly uh, times like this, the holidays, when you have to be in the same room, maybe even at the same table with someone that you don't like or someone who doesn't like you, right? So often our relationships are marked by selfishness, by pride, by self-promotion, right? by jealousy and backbiting and, and gossip. We look out for number one for ourselves. We, we think about our own needs and wants and cares and interests before we think about anything having to do with another person. We think we're better than others. We're smarter than others. We're more godly than others. And so we demand our rights. We think that we deserve more credit, more recognition, more respect, more reward than we get. So what is Paul's answer right, to those who struggle in relationship, which is all of us? What's the most important, the most useful thing that you need to mend broken relationships? Well, the answer might surprise you. The answer that Paul gives is theology, right? doctrine, truth. This isn't an answer that you probably would have given, but it's the answer that Paul gives. But, well, what doctrine in particular, you might ask? Well, well, Paul could have given us all sort of doctrines, couldn't he? But Paul could have pointed us to any of what we, we think of as the same, seven main divisions of, of, of theology, right? He could have taken us to the doctrine of Scripture and Revelation. He could have said, look, God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. He's spoken to us. He's laid the foundation for all of our communication with one another. Paul could have pointing us to what we call theology proper, the doctrine of, of God. He could have shown us how the one God has existed forever in three persons, has forever dwelt in love without any competition between the persons of the Godhead. Paul could have pointed us to anthropology. We'll see this even next Sunday night from the book of James, right? How each one of us is made in the image of God. And if you're relating to someone who's a believer, you're relating to someone who has been chosen and, and beloved by God from before the foundation of the world. And if God loves them, how can you not love them? Paul could have pointed us to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. He could have said, look, forgive as you have been forgiven. He could have pointed us to ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And he said, God has saved you into a covenant community to be in relationship. No one is a lone ranger, 
But God has given you the church, as we saw from Hebrews 3 this morning, to help you, to encourage you, to exhort you to love one another. He could have pointed us to eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. And he could have said, look, we, we live in between the, the times, between the already and the not yet. It's not until Jesus' second coming right, that we will be perfect and sinless in our relationships. But even now, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment that we might live on this earth as we will live on the new earth and glory. Paul could have pointed us in any of those directions. And all of those truths are, are here in this text and in, in the context, explicit or implicit. But where Paul chooses to focus our attention in this passage is on the, the doctrine, the truth of Christology, the study of Jesus, his person, his work, and particularly on the incarnation and what it entailed for Jesus. You see it there in verse 5. Paul says, after giving these commands, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Live the way that I've laid out for you in verses 2 to 4, because you have been united together to the incarnate Son of God. Be who you are in him. It's very possible that those last words should, should rather be translated, have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But, but however we translate that last little phrase, the, we get to the same place in the end because Paul in verses 6 through 11 immediately launches into this glorious hymn of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He sets forth his pre-existence. He sets forth his humiliation. He sets forth his exaltation. And he sets forth the, these things as the highest model, the highest example of what verses 2 through 4 look like. In this passage, in verses 6 to 11, we have the greatest parabola ever. You remember parabolas from algebra class? All of a sudden, like horrors and, and fears come back to your mind, right? Y equals X squared. Oh, no, right? But you remember when you saw that graph, whether the X is positive or negative, when you square a number, when you multiply it by itself, it's always positive. And so there's this graph, right? From, it's, it's a U-shaped curve. It comes down and then it goes back up. And probably when you were in algebra class, you thought, when am I ever going to use this, right? And it's perhaps true that you've never used a parabola in your entire life, right? But the parabola that's here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is saying is the most useful parabola, the most practical parabola that you have ever known in your life. Because like food dye in water, this truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is to permeate all of your relationships. Even though Paul is speaking about what Jesus' incarnation and life and death and resurrection and exaltation meant for him, more so than even for us, yet Paul is speaking about what it meant for Jesus to show forth the truth of how we are to live. The example of Christ gives concrete shape and form to Paul's exhortations in verses 2 to 4. There's so much here in this text, but I want us to, to focus our attention upon sort of the left side of the parabola, right? The pre-existence of Jesus and the humiliation of Jesus. Let's think together first at the pre-existence of our Savior. Paul begins his meditation upon Christ by, by pointing to the fact that before he was born into our world, he already existed. 
Right? From before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, the eternal Son of God dwelt in pre-incarnate glory. Before he became a man, he was. He was. He was in the form of God, Paul tells us. He, he shared equality with God, Paul tells us in verse 6. To exist in the form of God means that, that whatever God has always been, Jesus has always been. He has always fully possessed the divine nature. He has always had all of the attributes of God. Whatever it meant to be divine, Jesus has had it from before times eternal. In the words of the, the author of the Hebrews, Jesus has always been the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Or as John put it, we read this last week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When everything was created, you see, Christ Jesus already was. Back in the third and the fourth centuries, little children whose parents followed a, a man named Arius uh, believed that, that Jesus was the highest creature that, that there was a time when he was not, and the children would go around singing, there was a time when he was not, there was a time when he was not. But Paul is saying in Philippians 2 that no, there has never been a time when the Son was not. From all eternity, Jesus has been in the form of God. He has been equal with God. In the words of the Nicene Creed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, he has always been very God of very God eternally begotten of the Father and not made. He's always been the same in substance with the Father and the Spirit, equal in power and glory. All the fullness of deity, all the glory and prerogatives and dignity and privileges and power and authority and rights of God have always been his. But look what Paul tells us there in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're getting here a shadowy glimpse into eternity past, aren't we? In what the church historically has called the covenant of redemption, when the God had covenanted together to deliver a people from the guilt and power of sin, the Son of God willingly and deliberately and humbly refuses to consider the advantages and the privileges of his divine nature and status as a thing to be greedily clung to and clutched at. He didn't use his equality with, with God as something to be used for his own advantage, as an excuse for self-assertion or self-aggrandizement or self-promotion. But on the contrary, Paul says, he chose to use the fact that he was God, fully God, for the advantage of others as an opportunity for self-denial. He voluntarily chooses the path of humble service and obedience. And Paul says he emptied himself by leaving the glories of heaven for an earthly state of humiliation. Which brings us to the second point. Having seen the pre-existence of Jesus, we see the humiliation of Jesus. And Paul highlights the two phases of Jesus' state of humiliation, doesn't he? First, his incarnation. And second, the purpose of the incarnation, that is crucifixion. Look at verses 7 and 8 to see the incarnation of our Savior. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Paul tells us here that Jesus Christ emptied himself. Now, be careful. It doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God when he was born into this world. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity when he was conceived in Mary's womb. No, he did not empty himself by subtraction, but rather, as Paul tells us, he emptied himself by addition, not by subtracting from himself his divine nature, but by adding to himself a human nature, by taking the form of a servant being born the likeness of men. You see, what Paul is saying is that without ceasing to be who he was and what he was, he became what he was not. In the incarnation, he was conceived. He was born as a true man. He was conceived, of course, without a human father, miraculously by the Holy Spirit. And so he comes into this world without any sin, but he appeared to everyone who saw him because he really was a man. He doesn't appear as divine. He doesn't appear as one in the form of God, even though he was. But he appears in human form, as a real live human being. John Calvin helpfully puts it like this. Christ, indeed, could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He kept it concealed for a time. Right? He, he, he lower, lowers himself, shrouding himself, himself and humanity, shrouding his glory that he had before the foundation of the world in his humanity and in the fact that he lived and appeared as someone in a low, in a servile condition. Notice he didn't take the form of an all-powerful human king, but of a lowly servant, of one who was obligated and dependent one who, in his own words from Matthew chapter 20, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself away in death for the sake of others. And that brings us to the second phase of his humiliation, doesn't it? The reason for the incarnation, his crucifixion. You see it there in the rest of verse 7 and 8. Paul says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was born as a man, as Newell said in his prayer, in order to obey God on behalf of men, in spite of being tempted beyond any man, and in order to obey God to the point of dying on the cross in the place of man. He humbled himself, not just to be born and that in a low condition, but he humbled himself at every step along the way, choosing the path of humiliation step by step, despite the temptations to forsake the way of pain and the way of suffering to which that path was inevitably leading. He obeyed all the way to the cursed death of the cross. He suffered physically in nakedness and shame as a condemned Roman criminal. He was forsaken. He was punished by his father as the one who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His humility, his selflessness were on full display from the cradle to the cross. Do you see the point that Paul is making as he, as he speaks to us of the preexistence of Jesus and the humiliation of Jesus and the incarnation all the way 
to the cross. Paul is saying to us, have this mind in you. The mind that is yours in Jesus Christ. The mind that was in Christ from beginning to end. I love the way that the Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod has put it. Though Jesus was God, he did not refuse to be sent forth. He did not refuse to be made poor. He did not refuse to beggar himself. He did not refuse to become flesh. He did not stand upon his dignity. He did not insist on his rights. He did not parade his equality. Or paraphrasing John Milton, the poet, Jesus chose to forsake the courts of everlasting day and to take with us a darksome house of mortal clay. You see, Jesus came into this world not demanding, look, if I come, it's got to be in the first class seats. It's got to be in the skybox. No, on the contrary, Jesus left the glory and the privileges of heaven. He gave of his rights and his dignity. He relinquished his advantages to dwell in the economy seats, right? Coach class. Think it. He was born to poor parents in scandalous conditions, laid in a filthy manger, growing up in obscurity. He wasn't first and foremost concerned about what would be most comfortable to him, but to giving comfort to others. He wasn't motivated by selfish ambition or an exaggerated view of himself, but by what was good for those for whom he had come to save. He considered us more important than himself, and he lived for our interests. Paul puts it in a nutshell in Romans 15, verse 3, he did not please himself. He did not please himself. And Paul is saying, this is the Jesus to whom you have been united by faith. This is the Jesus whom you are to follow. The humility, the self-denial, the focus on others shown in the incarnation is to be our model to imitate. We are to look to him. We are to live in him as we relate to everyone around us, especially here in the church. Right? The humble, the self-denying mind of Jesus is to be our mind. It is to be our way of life. Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, then you are his bondservant. And you are the bondservant of, of those around you. They do not exist for you, but you exist for them. God calls us to die to our own rights, to deny ourselves, to serve one another, to consider others as more significant than ourselves, to look to their interest. All of our lovelessness, all of our conflict, all of our strife, whether in marriage or between siblings or at work or with neighbors or in society, it all stems from a lack of self-denial. It all stems from pride and selfishness that insist on our rights, our dignity, our way, our recognition, our glory our control, our comfort. And Paul says, no, we are to seek to please others rather than ourselves. Use the glory of the incarnation, Paul says. Use the glory of Jesus' emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. Use the glory of that pre-incarnate decision of the eternal Son of God, of the act of taking to himself a human nature, of his ongoing life of humble obedience that leads to his death on the cross. Use it. Use it to confront your own pride, your own lack of self-denying love. See how Christ has loved you, and you will love one another. This past week, our, our front 
door handle broke, completely broke. Had to go to Lowe's to get a new one. And of course, we already have keys to our front door, right? Several people in our family have keys to that door. And so you don't want to, to just keep the, the cylinder, the lock exactly the same. So what do they do? They take your key, right? They stick it in their machine and they conform the, the, the cylinder, the lock to your key, right? They, they do whatever they do so that all the grooves, all the, the patterns of the key will fit precisely into that lock. Don't you see what Paul is saying here is, is that this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in our heart. Jesus' incarnation, it is the key. And we are the cylinder. We are the lock that is to be conformed to the pattern of his life. More and more, day by day, as we meditate upon the truth of the incarnation, as the Holy Spirit works this truth deep within our hearts, we start to think and to look and to act like him who has rescued us from our fallen estate. Jesus was born, he lived, he died in order that you might be transformed into his image, that you might imitate him. How did he put it on the night in which he was betrayed after he had taken up the servant's towel and essentially lived out these verses with his disciples, washing their dirty feet? He says this, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And then he says this, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. How easy it is to know the truth, but not be changed by the truth. How easy it is to confess, yes, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, fully God, fully man, one person, two natures forever, but not to live out that truth as Paul sets it forth for us here in Philippians chapter two. I close with another quote from Donna McLeod. This, this quote has always uh, been very real to me. As I said last week, I grew up in a, in, a, in a Christian culture that didn't care about truth, right? It sort of gave lip service to truth. And, and when I first read these words, it was like, yes, that's exactly what I've been seeing in the Bible. It puts to, uh, into these words uh, the very thing right, that I was struggling with as, as a young believer growing up. Listen to what he says. He says, Philippians 2, 1 to 11 reminds us that theology exists in order to be applied to the day-to-day -day problems of the Christian church. Every doctrine has its application and all the application must be based on doctrine. In both Philippians 2, 1 to 11 and 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the text that we'll look at next Sunday, Paul is dealing with what are surely comparative trivia, right? The problem of pride and selfishness in a Christian congregation the problem of the failure of Christian liberality, 2 Corinthians. Yet Paul, as he wrestles with both of them, he has recourse to the most massive theology. Who would ever imagine that the response to the glory of the incarnation might be to stop our quarreling and our divisiveness in the Christian church? Paul is telling them, I love this. You have these practical problems. The answer is theological 
Remember your theology and place your behavior in the light of that theology. Place your little problems in the light of the most massive theology. Brothers and sisters, our problems sometimes don't feel very little, do they? And yet compared to the glories of the incarnation of Jesus, they are little. And his truth, his reality, his presence is enormous. And so we need to take our lives and take our relationships and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ, who from the cradle to the cross lived a humble, self-giving life. And we are to say, Lord Jesus, help me, help me to live as you lived. Help me to walk in humility, to walk with a concern for others so that you might be glorified. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you know each one of us. You know our relationships. Lord, you know the relationships that are, that are broken, that don't function as well as they ought to. You know the relationships that have been torn asunder almost completely. Lord, we pray that as we meditate upon your incarnation, that you would change us. You would soften our hearts towards one another. You would grant to us humility in the place of pride. You would grant to us, O oh Lord, an others focus rather than a self-focus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to think on and to apply this glorious, massive truth of Jesus' emptying himself by taking to himself the form of a servant. Oh Lord Jesus, we don't understand all the mysteries of your person, all the mysteries of the incarnation, nor can we. We are finite. And yet, Lord, we, we see here in the text, Lord, how that truth is to be applied in our lives. So help us, we pray, not merely to believe the truth, but to live it out, to use it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.